and welcome to Talking Football Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. This week we'll be talking about one of the all-time greats of German football. On Sunday we were saddened to hear that Der Bomber der Nation passed away. So in this episode we'll be trying to talk about Gerd Müller's legacy within German football. Müller was the most lethal striker that the Bundesliga has ever seen. Most of his records from the 60s and 70s still stand to this day. So there's plenty to talk about. My name is Nick Wiltag and I'm joined by Susie Scharf, who truly is a German national team aficionado and Bayern Munich expert. So, Susie, welcome to the show. Nick, thank you for having me. And it's uh, lovely to be on a podcast. It is great to have you. I mean, James has talked to you in the past. Matt has talked to you in the past. Now it's my turn because, you know, both of us do share passion for, for a bit of, you know, the historic side of uh, the Bundesliga and Bayern Munich. And, uh, well, Susie, when it comes to Gerd Müller, where shall we start? I mean, we could run down the stats saying that he scored 523 goals and 580 competitive outings for Bayern. Incredible, 365 of those goals came in the Bundesliga. Additionally, there are 34 goals in 35 European Cup matches. But shouldn't we just start with the fact that his signing in 1964 was actually a pivotal moment in Bayern Munich's history? Yeah, uh, that's a great place to begin. And it would forever change. It would actually be right before the start of the Bundesliga in in total, and really the start of the first period of dominance for Bayern Munich in the league. This also kind of ran along the same lines of West Germany's period of dominance as well. And these are games, you know, the, obviously I was just a wee little thing, so it, these weren't games I was seeing live you know, it was only later in life that I got to see historical games like that on tape for, for Bayern and for West Germany. But he's the reason why I love football and was immense in bringing German football, along with the rest of his teammates, of course. You know, one man is not a team, but he was definitely a legend and something special and crucial to Germany's dominance in that period and Bayern Munich's influence heading forward and even to this day. Mm, indeed. I mean, about this signing, there, there are so many funny side notes to it because, for one, I mean, many many of you may not know this, but Gerd Müller uh, in his youth used to be a Nuremberg fan. So, Der Club, which is one of uh, Bayern's rivals from, uh, well, Franconia, they are probably sick to their stomach to this day that they never even considered signing him. And additionally, 1860 Munich arrived on the same day as Bayern's officials made sure of that transfer to sign Müller. So history could have gone so many other directions with Gerd Müller, which is, which is really an interesting side note. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that the way the world works and and the way that football works, I mean, what could have been or what would have been the fate of clubs that exist today could have been completely different. <laughs> yes, indeed. Knowing that you do live in Florida and that Gerd Müller has played in Florida, have you, have you ever met him by any chance? Yes, I actually have. He opened a restaurant called The Ambry which happened to be, I don't know, less than two miles from my house. And that's the place, especially during the winter months, where all the Germans that came and spent the winters in Florida, they would come congregate there. And he opened it as kind of a lark 
He was a bit of a playboy in his Fort Lauderdale striker days. So his teammates and the opposing teammates in the NASL after matches, it was on the same main road. The stadium that they played at, Lockhart Stadium, was probably about uh, maybe three or four miles from there. So they'd all head over to his restaurant after the matches. But it was generally a place that a lot of Germans congregated. And since we were German and Germans congregated there, my mother would take my sister and I there. Sometimes after matches, try and keep us separated from the boozing at the bar. But yeah, I I was introduced to him. And this is uh, right at the beginning of my, I guess, football watching career, very briefly. And I probably looked like a boy. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't remember specifically what the conversation was, but I was just, I was in awe of everything. Uh, You know, imagine being like a very impressionable, I don't know, seven or eight year old person, right? Mm. With all these big guys around you and very gregarious conversation and, you know, and after getting to see the Fort Lauderdale strikers, you know, in the, in the stadium, it was, seems to be like it would be, it was overwhelming then. And, you know, even in the present day, I, even though I was a writer about everything, I'm still definitely a Bayern Munich supporter, you know? So even today I meet players and my heart, you know, and and my heart races Mm. and, you know, you still have that, I guess there's, that little girl feeling of, of excitement, you know, somewhere inside of you, you're like, oh my God, this is actually happening, you know, whether you can keep a straight face about it or not, uh, it, it's still that same kind of feeling. <laughs> well, I've, I've worked, uh, I've worked as a, as a freelance journalist in Norway, and uh, let me tell you, when you when you meet Rene Klingbeil in the mix zone, it's not that same feeling. <laughs> Be that as that may. Um, We've all known that Gert Müller has been in a care home for some time, but um, Jupp Heynckes spoke about him after after his passing and said that Gert Müller, he always was a guy who never put himself above anybody else. He always was a caring person, and he was he was somebody who people could relate to. Did you feel that in the meeting with him, that he, that he was a very sort of relatable guy, or, or were you just too frightened to notice anything at all? No, and this is mostly with like an adult's perspective rather than a child's wonderment. You know, learning about his life over the years and his trials with alcoholism and his partying lifestyle. You know, he he was a guy. He was an everyman. Mm -hmm. He was not a pillar. He was not a statue to be adored, you know, you you confer legend status upon legends, hopefully, right? Whether they're legends that are playing now or whether they were legends in the past in history, historical legends. He was a guy with, with problems like everybody else has problems. And probably what made him so beloved is he didn't try and put himself above that. Like that was him, a humble guy who just, he did what he did. And there's something to be said for that. I never felt like there was an aloofness, like maybe that you would get, I don't know. 
I don't want to, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want anybody bad mouthing me if I make a choice, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely feel that, you know, I've, I've never met the guy, even not as, not as an eight year old. I've read about him and loads and loads of books. And uh, one of the stories that really stuck with me was the fact when he actually managed to score 40 goals in the 71, 70, Two season, the mayor of Nuldingen, the place where he was from, said, "Boy, we want to erect a statue in your honor." And Gerd Müller said, "No, <laughs> I, I'm not important enough for any statue of me to be erected. Please don't." <laughs> and you, you know, he was such an unassuming, lovely, nice man at the bottom of his heart. And it it wasn't sort of like... With Uli Hoeneß, you could have imagined him saying no, but he would have sort of played the mind game of, would this help my career? Would people think I'm too big on myself? Or, hmm, how, how should I go about this? Hmm, hmm, statue of me. With Gat Müller, it was just simple, no, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> please don't. I'm, I'm not that type of person. Please don't erect a statue of me. I'm, uh, I'm just good. That really um, sums up that that man quite beautifully in in this one anecdote, and uh, I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it was his upbringing. Maybe it was even the fact that his first coach at Bayern, Chick Tchaikovsky, he was actually rather underwhelmed when he saw him the first time around after the club at Saint Müller in '64, and he actually gave him his um, nickname that stuck with him for quite some time, which was Kleines Dickes Müller, which translates to short, shabby Müller. But with Müller, Tchaikovsky would soon find out that Bayern with or without Müller, that were two completely different sides at times in the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when we debate grades and, you know, I mean, Gerd Müller, Jupp Heynckes said, if, if there was a heaven and God would have a football team, you know who's in charge of goals right now. But oftentimes, you know, the debate of, of former grades like Netzer, Beckenbauer and Müller gets to the point where people say, would they make it as a footballer now? Would they be capable of playing in the Bundesliga in today's days and age? What would you think about Gerd Müller? Do you think he, he could make it as a player even today? I do. Strangely, I do. I feel like the talent that he possessed to be in the right place at the right time Obviously, he was only 5'9", which is short for a striker, and he didn't have the typical football body. Kleines Dickes Müller. Yeah, Kleines Dickes Müller, which funnily enough, think about modern football in Bayern Munich specifically, and his namesake, Thomas Müller, mm. who is this awkward guy, skinny, lanky, you know, the physicality doesn't match between the two of them, but their football brain, I think, matches quite a lot. Finding themselves in the right place at the right time, making what seems like a split-second decision, you know, whether you're adjusting your body just a little bit just to get a right angle for a shot or, in Miller's case, an assist. You know, not the typical or prototypical football guy. But Gerd Müller was able to always be in a position for headers, you know, always be in position where he was supposed to be, was not super flashy, although at times results from things that he did were. Yeah, I, I think he absolutely could compete today. 
I would agree with you because when you watch old tapes and I think where the history writing and, and, you know, his Wikipedia page and the way he's been portrayed, you know, almost 50 years after he finished playing is, is, you know, he's oftentimes portrayed as that guy who um, could get into the box and just finished off a move. But when you watch Bayern from the 70s and late 60s, he actually is quite involved in that passing game. The pass combinations between Beckenbauer and Müller, they were actually quite fluid. He had a footballing brain. He knew how to move. He wasn't just the guy who knew where to pop up in the box. He also knew how to play the game. And, you know, that is something that... Um, it is a must these days. I mean, you had some strikers from the 60s and 70s who just were basically lurking around and getting lucky. Gerd Müller wasn't one of those guys. He had a footballing brain, and for that, he pretty much um, managed to score goals galore. And at the same time, he, he also managed to queue up a lot of his teammates, and that is oftentimes forgotten. mentioned his career at Bayern, having mentioned all those numbers and stats, we should also talk about him in the national team. So if you want to tell our listeners what you think about Gerd Müller and the national team, what do you think? Was he also a very pivotal character there? Kind of a leading question this. I think I started watching German soccer. There was a venerable television program in the United States called Soccer Made in Germany, right? And it used to be on our public broadcasting station on Sundays if I recall. Yeah, Sundays. So, and me starting out as as a fan came, uh, this is going to sound like a really weird and long story. I should probably shorten it a little bit, but I started watching Brazil before I started watching Germany, and that was because my father lived there. So I grew up as a uh, Brazilian fan until I started watching Gerd with the Strikers. And then um, slowly my attention turned away from the post-Pele era of Brazil, or actually at the tail end of his career, into the tail end of, of Gerd Müller's career, and that led me to Bayern and onward, and here we are now. But also the German national team was has been a great part of my uh, football watching history and lessons, especially lessons from... Oh, gosh, the 1974 World Cup, beating Johan Cruyff's Dutch team in the final, uh, him scoring the winning goal. You kind of feel like there was this sort of, like I said earlier, the, there was this sort of parallel between Bayern Munich and the German team at the time. It was the same sort of dominance to me, you know, and it really... Like I said, it was tough to draw away from Brazil, right? Mm. And two completely different styles where it seemed that the German national team was was more physical and more hard-nosed. And there was always that, quote, workmanship quality about them. And I remember watching when I was younger and seeing the sort of physicality and saying and thinking to myself, oh, I like this. This is how, how I want to play. And that era, that era is is golden to rewatch matches and to see. You can still see a lot of modern football in it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, what really struck me about that German national team is that um, 
I mean, historically speaking, the uh, 74 World Cup is always remembered for the World Cup that should have been won by the Dutch. But when you watch that final, it's really a match on equal footing, really. So I, I don't think it's all that undeserved that uh, if you just see that one match and don't think about the entire World Cup, but just see that one match, I don't think it's all that undeserved that Germany actually won it. I might have not seen all much of tainted glasses here, but um, that's my my point of view. And Gerd Müller, absolutely pivotal guy. Funnily enough, this goal that he scored in the in the World Cup, the the winner, that wasn't actually rated as the goal of the year in '74. That was actually scored by Erwin Kosteder, another striker who who struggled with alcohol. And you mentioned it already, Gerd Müller. He had a large demon in his life, which was the booze, wasn't it? So. What do you know about his struggle with the alcoholism and how did it affect him in his playing days and how did it affect him afterwards? So so what I know about it is, like I said, the beginnings of when he opened his restaurant. Obviously, he was drinking heavily before this, but still performed at a high level. And then that, you know, you move to the NASL. Those were glory days of the NASL, but I am sure the competition was a little bit less strenuous than you would have found on, say, the German national team or <laughs> or in the Bundesliga at the time. You know, he was a drinker. He was a party guy. I'm sure Ushi knows I'm not saying anything that she doesn't, but, you know, he was a ladies' man and he was that charming every guy. He's approachable and likable. You know, on the surface, a happy guy that drank a lot, you know? And uh, obviously, it catches up with you at some point, you know? Especially if you're an alcoholic, those party days, nothing lasts forever. And I'm sure, I'm almost positive that his problems with alcohol probably led to a cognitive decline, which assisted uh, his Alzheimer's diagnosis in the future. And it was great for him to, to be able to come clean and for Bayern Munich to pick him up as a family. You know, they got him to get his, uh, you know what, together, mm. get his life together, get his act together after coming back to Germany from the States. And uh, kind of picked him up and said, you know, and they gave him a home and a family of people. And they, you know, they, they kept him around, of course, to keep watch over him, but also, you know, to keep him of value. And, and he also could be valued in that way. He was actually uh, was he assistant coach for for the second team for some time. Yes. So he actually he actually went to the training pitch every day, and um, I mean that is um, really one thing that is key in recovery of when it comes to any addiction. Really, is that you do have the feeling that you have to go to something that is valuable in life. Yes. Which keeps you from drinking or abusing the drugs you were using before. Yeah. And, because and, as long as you don't feel any value, what else is there? Right. And being grateful, being grateful for your surroundings and, and the people in your life, uh, you know, and Bayern Munich as not just a club, but an extended family. Could you imagine like being a kid in Bayern Munich too and having Gerd Müller as your <laughs> co-trainer? 
geez, Louise, you know, <laughs> think about stuff like that. I would be speechless. Like, <laughs> yes, sir. No, sir. Every day. I'm, I'm, I'm saluting right now. You, nobody can see this. That must have been a treat. And I don't hear too many or I haven't heard too many stories about about him as as being a co-trainer as far as like interpersonal you know, conversations, but I can, I can only imagine and hope, you know, in my imagination, you know, having the co-trainer pull you over to give you, give you a talk about whatever would have been like, wow, you know, to the player, very, very important all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, in his older days, he looked like a, you know, the nice geography teacher. (laughs) And uh, he, you know, as, as we said, he was, he was a, softly spoken gentleman who was unassuming who was kind to everybody really maybe not kind to ushi during those lady chasing days but that truly must have been hard on her i i I would imagine but um again she stayed with him and uh probably for good reason i I would imagine so uh what do i know about that marriage nothing well to to round off our discussion when you heard about get miller's passing what, what were your first thoughts i mean You've already mentioned a lot about how you've related to him throughout your life. What, what were your first thoughts that, that struck you? What, what, what was coming through your mind? This is not hyperbole, but it was like a cavalcade of every emotion, almost every emotion. At first, I just felt this. There's a survivor's guilt in this. A lot of people will know, or at least people that follow me on Twitter or, or know of my writings or whatever. My mother suffered from mm-hmm. Alzheimer's at the same time that Gerd Müller did. So I was actively writing about football when he was diagnosed. And that hit me in the same sort of way that his death did, just because he's really, he's the reason why I started watching football, right? The reason why I really, really got into Germany and really, really got into Bayern Munich And for him to suffer the same fate that my mother went through. So the sense of relief is when it's when it's all over. My mother passed in 2018. When it's when it's all over, there is a weight that as a caregiver or as a family member, as a loved one that is lifted off your shoulders. So that is the sense of relief. When you see somebody that is stricken with that, it's the most terrible thing. And it's it's terrible. It's just the worst disease in the world, especially at the end stages. It's it's just it's God awful. So I felt relief for Ishi and their family and all of their loved ones, any caretakers he had, his doctors, everyone who who encountered him you know, especially in the late Alzheimer's stages, there's a relief. And then there's just this overwhelming sadness, because really, if you knew him or or knew of him, you started losing him years ago. You know, there's a slow, inexorable slide towards the end, and that's it. And there's, you can't do anything about it. You know, so there's this very slow period of mourning, And you think maybe when you get to the end, you can handle it better, but you don't. Or I find I didn't. Maybe there are people who approach it differently. So 
that is all mixed up for me. You know, my mother's condition and his and football and Germany and history and things are, they all coexist in my mind together. They're all in the same space, if that makes any sense. And, you know, I kind of jotted down some thoughts on Twitter real quick and just about the parallels. And I had linked an article that I'd written about Gerd Müller earlier for ESPN FC. And then I just stopped talking and I took it all in and I cried. I cried for several hours and it was for him, but it was for everything else as well. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, it's, it's such a God awful disease and, um, there's really nothing that can help it. Yeah. There are no drugs. There's no cure. Nothing. And I, you know, I've, I, I don't mention this an awful lot on, on this podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm a certified nurse here in Norway. I've worked in, you know, part of my training has been working at nursing homes. And I've met patients with Alzheimer's and... It's the worst, it's right? It's a god-awful disease. Yeah, I mean, the other disease I absolutely don't want to get personally is ALS. I've seen that too. But yes, Alzheimer's is, is the worst thing I could possibly imagine. And to see that slow decline and, you know, I mean, what many of you probably maybe don't know is, is the fact that patients with Alzheimer's, they actually do have at times moments of clarity where they just get to themselves for a moment and then slide back into, you know, that decline again yeah we call them uh we call them plateaus here mm. it levels out for a while and then you'll get a little raise in like cognitive awareness mm. or spatial mm. awareness and then it slides down again and then it plateaus and then there's maybe a little peak or two and then it slides down again but those things it's, i mean the terrible things that you do see is that it gives a hope to the relatives and I mean, you know, I made a decision. There are drugs available that can keep a, an Alzheimer's patient at a more like stable mental level for a period of time, but then those stop working eventually mm. and they and I kept my mother off of them. I made a personal decision to keep her off of them because there is no other way that that is going to go. You know what I mean? And that's like the hopelessness. Why would I prolong the hopelessness? And so I have, I have so much feeling for, for Ushi and, and the family, because I know exactly firsthand how brutal and difficult it is. And I am so sorry that I know we don't want to put him on a pedestal and on a statue. He didn't want to be on a statue himself. Yeah, I know. He didn't even want to be a statue. But I'm so sorry that he had to go through this. And I'm so sorry that he's gone for this reason. Mm. It sucks. The footballing world, the world lost a legend, lost a good dude that happened to be a legendary football player. I mean, when I when I see the Messi's and Ronaldo's of today, and I see Gat Müller, 
I know which I would prefer. Final thing, and it's it's definitely good. I I prefer the flawed guy who is just a normal guy who's unassuming but just a bloody good footballer as well at the same time and doesn't make a fuss about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. I prefer that. I just I like that honesty a lot better than I do uh you don't you find that very rarely in the modern game or a lot less rarely in the modern in the modern game today. You do indeed. Um, Susie, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you personally for the first time. To round this off, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter. And, um, you know, if you want to hire Susie, who, <laughs> she, she's a damn good writer. And she knows, an awful lot, she knows an awful lot about German football and Bayern Munich. Yeah. So if you want somebody of that, of that caliber, yeah, you, should get, you should get her Twitter handle. Yeah, Find me mostly at Twitter these days at the Susie Schaff, T H E S U S I E S C H A A F. Yeah, like Nick said, I'm not I'm not doing any podcasting or writing these days, but I've been th- and really I've been thinking about dipping my toe back in. Yeah, if you want me to be your place to start, go ahead and reach out. I'd love to hear from you, Nick. Again, it was a pleasure finally getting to chat with you after having chatted with your counterparts in the past. And please give my regards to them both. I will. And thank you so much for having me today. And yeah, even though this episode or this part of the podcast is laced in sadness, you know, what I try to do or what I've tried to do is just think about what a kick-ass footballer he was. And uh, I've been filling my I've been filling my YouTube queue with uh, great goals and great games as well, and I advise everybody to do the same. Here, here, I completely agree with that. And yes, absolutely a pleasure getting to know you. And uh, you know what? Let's do this again at some point this season, and uh, let's talk about something I don't know, a little less sad, hopefully. Yes. Absolutely. I would love to come back at any moment. All right. We are really looking forward to that. You can find me, Nick Viltang, on Twitter at Normusings. You can hit up the podcast collectively at Talking Foosball if you have any feedback regarding our podcast. Please make sure to uh, listen to the Fantasy Boys, who will be back at the end of the week with an all-new episode. Until then, it is goodbye for now. 